Welcome to Amplify. On this week's episode... For me, it feels like I'm heading into some strange forest and searching out as yet undiscovered orchids and I'm bringing them back. And I can bring them back and study them and then put them into notated processes. Benjamin Dwyer on composing, free improvisation and Beckett. And at the beginning, we were amateurs in the proper sense of the word. And we are still amateurs in the sense that we're just basically doing this because we love making music. Nick Roth on Diatribe Records. That's music by Nick Roth. His clarinet quintet for klezmer clarinet, bass clarinet and string quartet, played by the Contempo Quartet and Paul Rowe. This is episode 18, and for one week only, Yvonne, apart from this introduction we're recording, this is a Zoom-free episode. A Zoom-free episode indeed in the middle of a pandemic with two kilometre radius restrictions, Jonathan. And we are going to feature interviews recorded back in February and in March, an interview in the home studio of the podcast in CMC, which is, uh, sounds very fancy, but it's really uh, just an area of your office. And uh, then our chat with Nick Roth at the National Concert Hall with all the buzz of the festival going on in the background. And I guess we can reflect on that as being the, the last time that the new music community had a chance to come together. And we have had some wonderful discussions, though, Jonathan, with composers through Zoom over the last six weeks. But there's really no matches there for, for meeting people in person face to face. There's a nice connection isn't there between both of these conversations in that Ben's interview was recorded before his new album What is the Word which was released on Diatribe Records and Nick's interview was recorded during the launch weekend of that very album along with a number of other albums by Irish composers and musicians that weekend. These two interviews Jonathan, Nick and Ben with yourself very engaging and uh, as they kind of explore their own approaches to their music making and Ben's recent works were released on the Diatribe record label that weekend Uh, as you've mentioned a number of releases across the weekend on the label and then showcases uh, on the diatribe stage of the the artists and uh, the works on those releases and uh, an amazing addition to the festival I think a lot of people considered the diatribe stage uh, one of their highlights Ben's concert with uh, his uh, long-term collaborators Barry Guy and Maya Homburger and then the actor Connor Lovett and uh, for the audience I think you could really feel this musical mutual respect among them and I found it totally engaging their rapport in the performance of Ben's music and across the weekend I I would say perhaps you know the the diatribe stage really celebrating improvisation innovation experiment and a spirit of collaboration between new music community both at home and abroad. And on the 1st of May, the day this podcast was released, 
Bandcamp are waiving their revenue share for all purchases made on that site on this day. And Diatribe Records will be amplifying this by waiving label share on digital sales, plus transferring proceeds directly to all artists within 24 hours. So as we've been saying for some time now on this podcast, please support our musicians and composers by buying their music. We'll add purchase links to everything played during this episode in the show notes for this podcast. And so, on to the conversation with Benjamin Dwyer. Ben is a composer and guitarist and is currently Professor of Music at Middlesex University. As we've already mentioned, this conversation was recorded in February and I started by asking him about what he was currently composing. I've just completed a work for, well, entitled Homage à Ligeti. That has come on the heels of a work I just completed last year, my Amanache, my Tombo on the death of Debussy. So that's been interesting. The last two compositions I've been working on were deep engagements with other composers. It is extraordinary the impact that has on your process, on broadening the envelope of your compositional thinking. Your compositional signature doesn't change, but you are drawn into that composer's world. Both of these pieces, incidentally, are for guitar. So I like to think that I've written pieces or something similar to the pieces that those composers might have written had they had the opportunity or the inkling to write for that instrument and do you find when you're when you're as you say you're moving into the the space of a particular composer these sort of major towering figures in 20th century music do you find that there's a danger that that composer's world can take over your world i mean how do you get the 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 kind of balance right it's more difficult with the debussy because the language is a little more conservative in that case the piece Perhaps if I could use the term, it's a little more accessible than much of my work. But I don't really feel that my compositional signature was lost in any way. And that's the intriguing thing about that. And you can learn so much, you know, from these amazing composers. You know, the, the Bussy piece was based on the, uh, the third etude, Pour la Quarte. So Debussy becomes like a ghost in that piece. And you do develop a kind of a postmodern engagement with, with older material. The Ligeti is actually much closer to my own language anyway, because he, he exerted a, a big influence on me. It's finding that transition from Ligeti's, um, mostly his polyrhythmic thinking, and seeing how that might work on the instrument. Do you compose regularly, or, or do you go to, to particular phases I don't compose regularly because I'm performing, teaching, I'm doing lots of many different things. So I'm dragged from A to B depending on the project and it makes the life rather um, unstable, (laughs) if I can use that term, you know. 
at the same time, it's something that you never fall into a complacency about. And I've been saying it for years, as you know, that the act of performance and the act of composition for me are symbiotically related. And for instance, my work over the last five years with Barry Guy and uh, my new colleagues in the free improvisation world has had a tremendous impact on the compositional process. And I wouldn't have wanted that any other way. terms of your own career this development of free improvisation and how it's become a very important part if not a central part of your your creative output where does all that come from i've written as you know 12 etudes i've written a lot for, for the guitar and so forth so my music was always connected to the playing that relationship was always there mm. being involved in the free improvisation world is so mind opening I mean, for me, it feels like I'm heading into some strange forest and searching out as yet undiscovered orchids and I'm bringing them back and I can bring them back and study them and then put them into notated processes. I think there's a, there's a certain snobbery here around the compositional process, a kind of a protectivism around it, because it's my experience that at the highest level, the not only is the music of a very high order, but the structure is of very subtle and distinct um, ilk. And I think, in fact, and I'm working on this in terms of my own study, and this gets into a philosophical understanding of free, free improvisation, is that consciousness works in a very sophisticated manner. And for one composer to say that um, only through one process, a notated process, this is the only way to, to devise reliable and complex structures is a form of arrogance, actually, because at the best moments of free improvisation, I've seen and heard the most extraordinary compositions from the content level, but also from the structural level. <laughs> When you're kind of experiencing that free improvisation um, and, you know, what you just described there, that you're 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 witnessing, you know, the best, some of the best things that are happening in, in, in music. Um, is that kind of a, a, a similar feeling or a similar process to when you are actually in a room on your own? working out a compositional problem through notation and you actually, you know, you arrive at a at a at a at a solution, so to speak. Well, for me, it's not because when it happens in the free improvised moment, <laughs> it's a surprise. <laughs> I think what's happening in the process of free improvisation is that you're giving your intuition a chance to be. You're trusting it. 
in the in the notational moment, there are levels of intuition taking place, but there's a huge rational process going on. There's a huge rational process going on in the free improvisation moment, but you are actually, and it's at its best moments, you're not really thinking rationally. Quite often, you're thinking non-rationally. It's it's on a it's on a different level. That's not to say that rationale doesn't exist within intuition. See, these are the types of dialectic that the West likes to pump out there. You're feminine or you're masculine, you know. He works very much on intuition, you know. He's not very clever. We need to reject this notion of the dualism that we, we, we favour here in the West. So these notions of siphoned areas, you know, silos. So you're either intuitive or you're rational. Well, I think you can be both. Like I say, when you're composing, there's quite a lot of rational thinking, but your intuition t- has, a, has a role there. But when you're performing in an improvised manner, when you're engaging with somebody else, there's something else happening as well. So you're not alone. You're bouncing off somebody else's improvisation. You mentioned Barry Guy and Mm. and he's presumably been very central to this whole, I guess, journey, you know, in, in free improvisation. Can you talk to me about a little bit about his, I guess, his influence on you? Yeah, I mean, I remember driving to Kilkenny to hear some bass player called Barry Guy, you know, and I said, oh, I better go along and see what this guy's about. And I sat at the back of the the, the the church and this man started playing and it was the most extraordinary thing. I mean, my eyes popped out of my head. I actually couldn't believe what I was not only hearing, but seeing. And it was the energy. We're talking maybe 20 years ago. It was the sheer energy and commitment of the performance, the vitality of the performance. Now, I'd always believed in this, but I don't think I'd ever seen that sort of sheer commitment. This guy was had just jumped off a cliff and... His survival depended on on how he performed and delivered this piece. And it was around that time I discovered uh, Lorca and Lorca's notion of duende, the whole thing that duende must be part of the compositional or the performative experience. If duende does not, it does not reside in the performance, it's just a technical display. And I later introduced that concept to Maya and Barry, Maya Hamburger, um, uh, Barry's wife, who's also an extraordinary musician. And they hadn't heard of Duende. And they said that actually that's what they always taught themselves uh, about performance and composition, that the commitment has to be 110%. Now, when when you're brought into that world then as a player, you have to give 110%. 
it's an extraordinary family of musicians. I'm thinking now of the Blue Shroud Band, although I do work with other people. But, you know, when I'm playing with people like Lucas Nigley and, um, you know, Peter Evans or people like that, there's a thing in improv and dance, it's called an offer. When they offer something to you and you take it or you offer something to them and they take it. I end up playing things that I never realised I could do technically or I didn't even know the fretboard was capable of devising such sonorities. That would never happen in the normal notational compositional process and it wouldn't happen if I was playing classical music or even contemporary music. It happens in this moment. Real discoveries are made. I will also add to that there's a tremendous ethical element to this when you have three, four or 14, which is the case of the Blue Shroud Band, 14 performers playing together in such a spirit of sharedness, openness, receiving and giving. It is an extraordinary experience and you do get the sense of a gathering for which the ethics of sharing becomes central to it. And it extends beyond that even because it extends to the audience. And then the audience then react. There's a kind of intra-action between the audience and the, the performing musicians. There is something extraordinary about these events that take place. And when things go well... The music that's created is more than the sum of the parts that created it. It's an extraordinary experience. And there's a whole ethical realm there that um, I think needs to be talked about as well, that we don't give too much consideration to. Yeah, that's 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 very interesting, because especially in the times that we we we, we live in and not not to not to bring it down to a low level of politics but i mean in terms of what you what you were dis discussing i mean it, it's it's very much kind of in tune with perhaps an alternative um an alternative vision, vision. Of, of of how the world should be it very much is in fact and i mean and if it, again to go back to the, the the blue shroud band there are 14 members and i think they come from 12 different european countries coming together at this particular time this is showing a vision of how things can be when we come together i don't think the political can be avoided In terms of contemporary music practice as a whole, do you, do you think there is enough questioning of the relationship between music and politics or what's going on in the world? Well, if I was to say no, it would come across as finger wagging in some way. And I'm very, very reluctant to get into that. You know, I mean, I know my good friend John Buckley believes that music and politics should remain two distinct practices. You know, I haven't taken that route at all. In fact, the older I, I get, the more I see music as just another expression of my own existence in this world, you know. Of course I write pieces that have nothing to do with anything, and that's fine. Of course it is. 
But I have to say the last five years or so, I've been drawn to uh, subjects that have political elements to them or if you like even philosophical elements to them i mean the whole, all the beckett work for example is is really for me a kind of a an exploration of the relationship between word and music that in itself is not necessarily political however you could say that when we see how language has been contorted by politicians Maybe there is some value in looking at the relationship between word and music. I mean, George Steiner, who was a huge influence on me, he said music cannot lie. Now, the texts set to music might lie, as in the operas of Mozart, where there's all sorts of shenanigans going on. But music itself cannot lie. Now, that's an interesting concept. So if we can try and figure out alternative ways of communicating that don't have the weak attribute of being able to be manipulated. Hmm, that's interesting. I don't know if I have the answer to all this, because maybe some people think that music can lie. You know, maybe music can be used to manipulate certain um, end results. You mentioned Beckett and, and music and, and you have a, a, a new album, What is the Word? Tell me about the importance of Beckett to you as a composer. Most of us have grown up with Beckett. I mean, Beckett comes across to other people, I think, outside Ireland as some sort of very, very elitist writer. My brother, when we were kids, used to do a mock Stones in the Pockets show at home for us and we'd be laughing you know at a very early stage we knew what the adjective Beckettian meant you know my work with Beckett though relates particularly to his late works the aesthetic that he grew into of what he calls himself lessnessness the paring down of language I consciously three years ago decided I, I wanted to tackle Beckett for me that meant figuring out what Beckett was about. And I reread everything. And I also read all the essays, you know, the whole thing. And I began to see what was happening as he was proceeding. Of course, then I heard Barry McGovern perform Beckett's last poem, What is the Word? And that really did it for me now. The whole notion that uh, perhaps the greatest writer in English and French of the 20th century was at the very end of his life asking this quite philosophical question what is the word he wasn't looking for a word he was looking for what language meant and that became the whole thing for me there was something about what Beckett was doing with language that was really capturing my attention because he was taking language towards silence you know he was trying to transcend language now I have to add something here that I've been doing transcendental meditation since since the age of 13 and so I could see the parallels here because, you know, when you're when you're doing TM, you're given a mantra and that mantra has a, a vibrational quality which brings the mind down to its quieter regions. 
And after a while, even you transcend the mantra, you transcend your body, you transcend your the time that you live in. You trans that's the whole notion of transcendental meditation. It takes this word to transcend, but you even transcend the word itself. If you're still reciting the mantra, you're not in that transcendental state. I've known this since I was a teenager. And then I go to read Beckett and understand Beckett. And he was trying to find the nothingness behind language. That's why he talks about failure all the time, because he was trying to find the beyond language through language. It's a kind of conundrum that you cannot escape. And I think that's why he had failure built into his aesthetic, that he was always trying to find the nothingness behind language, but had to conduct that investigation through language. So, it, you know, as I say in one of my pieces, he was trying to find out what it was beyond the radar signals of language. And so that's where his own perceived failure um, comes in. And that's why he was paring language down to its absolute, you know, he's letting silence in. You know, he talks about waiting for Godot. He says, it's like water entering into a sinking ship. He lets silence come into his language. That's why it gets more fragmented as we get along. If I read some things like folly, this is what is the word folly, folly for two, for two. What is the word? Folly from this, all this, folly from all this, given, folly given all this, seeing, folly seeing all this, this. What is the word? They're not full sentences. Every time he tries to language stops. There's failure built into that. There's silence built into it. And that was an extraordinary thing for me to discover because the connection between music and silence is also really very important because music gathers itself around silence it carves itself out of silence you know so that's what my piece is really about is that trying to figure out this relationship between the the limits of language and the limits of music and just using Beckett as a kind of a beacon for that Is it the same for, let's say, the relationship between uh, silence, words and language and silence and music and silence? Are they the same sort of processes or the same, you know, what are the similarities uh, well, between them? The one similarity is that if you're seeking silence through music, as Beckett was seeking silence through language, you have to transcend music just as much as you have to transcend language. So it's a conundrum for us as well. However... I do think there is a slight advantage with music. And this is 
rather philosophical, but let's focus on it for a moment. Language occurs and is practiced within the linguistic rationale that we've created for ourselves of signs and signals and so forth. We live our lives through that process of numbers and letters. That's how we largely rationalize and get through our day-to-day business. Poets and writers, they evolve language to different levels, but they are still working within the lexical systems that they have to use. Music does not reside in that realm. It's extra-linguistic. It's beyond language. And one could say that language has to find a new evolved level to get close to where music already resides. Because music allows us to feel, express and think in non-linguistic terms that somehow it's closer to the silence than the linguistic world that we live in. This objective world, monetized world, is dominated by numbers and language. And language, as we've heard, is being manipulated more and more to the benefit of some over others. And I, I put it out there that if, if we spent more time engaging in the non-linguistic practices, because they do have meaning for us. They, you know, when we try to describe music in, in terms of language, it falls flat. But only because the feelings that we have in music are so strong that language can never really capture them. And so because we live in a language-dominated environment, music is always put to the side as a kind of a form of entertainment of some sort. But, you know, in terms of its philosophical position in our world, I don't think it's been really addressed yet. I've asked this to a number of people over the last couple of months that I've been talking to for this podcast and and it's what are some of the issues in your opinion facing composers in new music today there are good decades and there are less good decades and we have to survive anyway through all that and maybe there's something about developing an integrity of the self that we don't become so dependent on others, you know, because at the end of the day, the quality of the work is the most important. I have seen over the years where, and I've done it myself, you know, we follow, we follow the commission sometimes. And maybe that's not where you should be following the commission. But of course, we all need commissions. So perhaps a different model 
is required. You know, the whole debacle over um, Patrick Pye, uh, that member of his donor who was very old, he's since passed away. They had taken his canoes away from him because he wasn't, produ- he was in hospital, he wasn't producing work. It's a capitalist understanding of the artist. Even the grant system is based on that. And I don't know if that's the right system. I mean, as we know, it took Joyce 12 years to write Ulysses. What grant would he have been given? You know, had Joyce not just left and done his own thing quite often in abject poverty, we wouldn't have Ulysses. It's a really difficult question to answer because I'm not saying the Arts Council isn't doing a good job. I'm not saying, you know, I'm very honoured to be a member of Aisdana and to have received the canoes, which I don't at the moment, but I may in the future. Mm. But the whole notion of artists producing a product is completely wrong and it's a misunderstanding. It's a, a miscomprehension of what the artist is. But alas, that's the world we live in where things are valued for their their saleability. The the impact of all this is quite broad because to what extent are composers then subtly influenced to write more accessible music? I don't know the answer to that. Mm. Um, But it's a question that should perhaps be raised in this environment. And that success is, is often measured through commissions oh, this composer was commissioned by the London Symphony Orchestra. Oh, he must be very, or she must be very successful, or whatever. Where it could be that the most successful composer will be the one we haven't heard of. of Benjamin Dwyer's five disjecta after Beckett, performed by the composer and ending that interview. Next, composer, performer and producer Nick Roth in a conversation recorded during New Music Dublin weekend with yourself, Jonathan. That's right. I managed to catch a brief window of 20 minutes to have a chat with him in between concerts. Nick was really, really busy over the weekend managing lots of different aspects of this diatribe stage. So it was great when we finally uh, managed to find the time uh, to have a chat together. So we went into one of the vacant rooms in the uh, National Concert Hall upstairs. And as always, it's really interesting to talk with Nick. He has lots of ideas. He's very open. He has this way of connecting his practice, what he does in music with um, with the world, I guess. So here it is now. I'm Nick Roth, I'm a saxophonist and composer uh, and co-director of Diatribe Records uh, and here curating the Diatribe stage at the New Music Dublin Festival. Correct me if I'm wrong, but 
Diatribe has been in existence as a record label for around about 10 years, 10 plus years. 2007, I think, is, is the first in the modern phase. The, actually, originally 99, the imprint was founded uh, and there was a couple of techno records put out. Um, and then there was a kind of hi hiatus and it was reanimated in, in 2007. So 13 years and 40 records in. So this is a really important milestone, isn't it, for Diatribe as a label and in terms of the culmination of all the work that you've done because you're releasing how many records is it? Seven records this weekend. Yeah, which is, you know, almost a quarter of our entire catalogue, you know, in a weekend. So, yeah, no, it's a huge step. Um, but we've also been preparing for this for two years. So there are some records which actually we could have brought out earlier and others that we've kind of rushed to, to finish. Um, so it's been a kind of um, a focusing point for, for the last two years of work. Um, and, you know, more than that, I think these seven records really do represent a milestone in terms of the, the output of the label. You know, and, and having a space like this in the concert hall in which to be based and present the artists and introduce the artists to each other and, you know, really embed it within the wider community um, feels great. Yeah, I mean, it's great to be here and a part of everything that's happening. And, you know, we've been really working at, at the periphery, I think, a, a lot of the time and maybe haven't been as central in the discourse. Um, and I do feel like this festival has kind of really planted us in the centre of, of what's going on. Does that feel good to get that sort of recognition? And does that have also have its challenges? Because, you know, there's a lot of advantage that you can have when you're on the periphery. You can do certain things, you, you know, plough your own furrow. But in terms of, maybe I'm overthinking this, but if you're brought into the centre, does that have some sort of challenges or change the maybe the dynamic of, of running a record label? Well, I mean, firstly, we're still on the periphery. <laughs> I mean, you know, in the concert hall, we're in room 103, which a week ago was a classroom that maybe hadn't had a gig in it ever. Um, you know, it's a carpeted room and we've had to put black out one wall, commission an artist, Roy Tiny, to do a piece on the blackboard because <laughs> otherwise we'd have had to hide it. Um, you know, and no one knows where we are. And, and you know, the room has had a capacity of, of 70 people, you know. So it still has that kind of underground feel, you know, like some of the best music that I've been a part of has happened in house parties, you know, just like playing in someone's bathroom, you know, and, uh, and kind of weird improv gigs where there's nobody there. And, and so, you know, it was partly out of choice to be kind of down in our own little space and have our own kind of, of zone um, within the kind of the larger concert hall matrix because it still retains that kind of feel. And, you know, you, you feel that you have a certain sense of freedom. And, and yeah, I agree if, if we were kind of really mainlined in and uh, became an institution, you'd, you'd have a lot less room to, to maneuver. And, and it's important to keep that. Um, but it's also, I mean, you know, Diatribe is, is a, uh, a record label, but in the real proper sense of the word, it's not a company. Like, we don't make money. We don't really get paid you know, to do this. Uh, it's still a hobby. And, and you know, in, in that Journal of Music interview, the, the quote says, we're, at the beginning, we were amateurs in the proper sense of the word. And I continued to say... <laughs> From the Latin root um, amare, you know, to, to love, amor mas um, And we are still amateurs in the sense that we're just basically doing this because we love making music. And yes, there is definitely a sense that having your driving force, as, as I was just talking about in the panel, the, the energy of creativity is it's just that need, that urge to make music, to play sound, to listen, to be with people sonically, to explore new things, to translate things into sound. 
that that kind of driving force is what makes us do what we're doing and 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 that ultimately will always keep you on the periphery because you're always moving outwards you know like the, the periphery is it's not a static point the 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 outline of the circle is actually the you know it's the edges of the universe <laughs> we're moving from the big bang and we're constantly expanding i was going to ask you about like how you know if you take record labels over the years and and even the history of of recording in Ireland like there's been so many examples of record labels that have sprung up and then sort of quietly folded after a number of years and I was going to ask you what was the thing that kept you going and I guess you've kind of answered it in the sense that you're always curious interested about making music about finding out about music and also this kind of thing about community which seems really strong in, in terms of what you do yeah and, and the community is also always expanding like every time you make a record you meet new people through doing that and they widen your association and so the community grows and you know, I, I think one of the reasons why we have this kind of expansion is that we're constantly looking to do something we haven't done before. You know, we're always trying to make a record that isn't like anything else we've done. It's in a different space that you know is a different kind of music, and I, I think that's that's part of the kind of the fuel because if you're really focused on this one kind of music in this one kind of place, eventually you're going to run out of that. You know. Or you're just going to be emulating it and trying to find something which basically does it, or people will understand that that's what you're looking for and change their style to suit it, as you know, I think has happened a lot with ECM, where people are like, oh, it's the ECM sound. If I make this kind of record, I'll get on ECM. Um, and we definitely don't have that issue. You know? um, so it's, in a way, you're kind of keeping people guessing, like, well, what is the, what is the diatribe sound? Because they did this record, and, it, and, you know. and there's a lot of spaces that we haven't gone into yet um, that I'd really like to. So I think that will keep the expansion going and keep the kind of the curiosity drive. you've been doing this since since 2007 you said obviously you don't make any money out of it it's it's a it's a labor of love so to speak is it easier to make records now in 2020 than it was back when you started um no i, I think in a way it's harder i mean in 2007 to 2013 there was pretty good funding from from the arts council here through the music recording scheme we we made say five or six records that were very well funded uh, through that scheme. You know, th there was also more studios around as well, like certainly of the kind of uh, scope and size that we need to make a large ensemble recording or something like that. Uh, and it was cheaper, it was cheaper to live in, in the city. <laughs> you, know? you could afford to do things um, that didn't necessarily make a lot of money because your rent wasn't so extortionate. Um, you know, now it's a much, much more difficult situation because of all of those things. Um, I mean, I think that's been offset by the fact that we now have a lot of inertia as a label and people are coming to us and attracted by the fact that we've done other work. And so in that sense, it's easier to make a record because we can say we've done all this stuff now. 
Um, you know, we, we have a track record of doing things, so if, if we want to, it's quite easy. And, you know, a lot of people come to us with a project that's pretty much there. They just need to put it out. Um, so in that sense, but in, in a more general sense, for, for everybody and for the community, no, I don't think so. And, and also that, you know, the actual kind of financial reward of making a record now is, is practically zero. You know, like you will never make back the cost of making your record, pretty much, 99% of the time. You know, and you know, I, I said this today in, in one of the meetings. They were like, "Well, how do you do it?" I'm like, "Well, we just make the music. We just don't make money. You know, we're a record label. We we make music. <laughs> That's what we do. We make a lot of music. I mean, the bottom line is that money as a system of government doesn't work. I mean, that that is the bottom line. Money is destroying the planet. It doesn't work. And one of the kind of uh, important things about music is that it teaches us that there are other reasons to live on the planet, you know? That musicians live to make music, that's what we do. That's what we want to do, that's what we are born to do and, and how we live, really. Um, how you make a living doing it is entirely secondary or how you make a living doing whatever you do is, is totally secondary to that. And so music kind of offers this model that says, you know, it's not all about the money, man. It's not all about it, there are other ways of living there are other ways of being. There are things more important than money. You know, if you get a, if you get a, you know, I got a taxi back last night, and the guy was like, "It's all about the money. The only thing that matters is the money." You know, and I've heard a lot of people say that. You know, it's, uh, it, it's, it's almost like that seems like common sense, but it's not. You know, if if we all think like that, as a species, we're dead. But that's that's the bottom line. So, you know, music is kind of saying, well, you know, what if there are other things? What if there are other ways? What if there are things which are more important than money? You know? and, and ultimately it comes down to, well, you don't need money. You need food, you need shelter, you, know? you need safety, you need uh, your people and, and your community. And music is certainly more conducive <laughs> to, to bringing people together than the money is, you know? I would say. So in, in that way, it's kind of a window into an alternative way of thinking about how we are on the planet. And, and I think if we can really uh, live within that, then we have a slightly better chance of finding alternative systems of governance, alternative systems of organization on a mass scale, you know, and possibly this whole system of governance is also linked to language, that maybe if we're able to communicate through music directly without having to, you know, use these kind of very uh, bilateral um, binary forms that language kind of contains and, and use the kind of the poly uh, polymorphism of music that it can take on so many different things and be so many different things at the same time um, and allows for a mass communication in a kind of a collective sense then maybe this will give us some answers to the kind of questions that, like what kind of society do we want to move into? What would we like to be on the world? And how can we stop destroying the planet and learn to care for it? Music by Nick Roth, his Bata, performed by Lina Antonoska, ending this conversation with the composer. That's all for this week. We'll be back again next week with another episode. Until then, 
Thanks for listening and stay safe.